Welcome to the 210th episode of the 4th and 24 podcast with Patrick Winograd. I'm your host, Patrick's father on Father's Day, Randy Winograd. In this Father's Day edition of the podcast, our topics are a brief overview of Patrick's weekend predictions, a review of the NBA and NHL playoffs, and our weekly look at Major League Baseball. Let's jump right in, as always, with a look back at Patrick's weekend predictions, which are posted every Thursday on our website, 4thand24.com. A little bit of new flavor in this uh, weekend prediction wrap-up. Major League Baseball weekend series predictions. Patrick went 1-3, and and as we hinted at last week, in College World Series action, Patrick went 3-1 and one with his weekend predictions, making him 4-4 four and four combined, bringing him to a 744 and 485 overall record. That is a 60.5% winning percentage. Patrick, your thoughts on your weekend predictions? Well, it's not necessarily two of my best weeks in a row. Last week I went 1-3 in MLB as well. Um, I will say in terms of these predictions, I could actually pretty much tell on day one, to be honest, that the predictions weren't going to go very well. Um, I predicted, you know, Wednesday night, whatever, I pretty much normally do that. But once I had seen the Dodgers struggle to an extra innings victory over the White Sox on Thursday after the win that the Giants were able to pull off on Wednesday morning, saw the rest, and then the Dodgers changed their pitching plans for the weekend, I would have flipped my pick to the Giants if I was given the chance. Um, Because also... I thought that the Dodgers were starting to turn it around at the beginning of the White Sox series and the, the beginning and then the middle of that. And then I thought that, you know, they'd play a good game on Thursday and then realize, all right, guys, we're playing a rival. Let's play some better baseball, um, get it going this weekend. And pretty much the opposite happens. That happened. They actually probably, I would argue they played, wor- played worse than they did against the Giants, honestly. I think that from a fundamental standpoint, they played worse. They might have hit the ball harder and they might have had better results and better stats, I guess you could say. Not really, because they only scored eight runs in the entire series. Um, But I I do think that just from the basics of baseball and just from playing playing what you would call good baseball, no matter what the talent level is, the Dodgers did not do that over the weekend, Um, which was surprising to me, considering that it was a series against a rival and a series that typically both teams are very, very geared up for. And even when the Giants aren't very good, they typically play way above expectations. And same with the Dodgers. Even when they're going well, they will struggle with the Giants. And even when the Giants were leading the division and the Dodgers were struggling in 2021, the Dodgers would still kind of muster up the effort to play with an injured lineup and take some games off the Giants. But this was a very odd result. The the Dodgers getting swept at home, especially because the Dodgers have been great at home all season as well. Uh, But... Just a surprising result in that one. And then the same thing happened with the Red Sox and the Yankees. Honestly, I looked in the middle of the first Red Sox-Yankees game this weekend, and I said, hmm, last weekend you picked the Yankees to beat the Red Sox. They won in Garrett Cole's start, which is something they've done pretty much all year. But the Red Sox won the other two games. Why did I think that all of a sudden the Red Sox were going to lose at Fenway to the Yankees in a series without Garrett Cole pitching a single game? And literally before the first game started, I was like, huh, this isn't going to go very well now, is it? Kind of doubted that one. You know, that one didn't go well. The Red Sox swept the Yankees. That Yankees, honestly, in the same position as the Dodgers. Really, that series. I mean, honestly, uh, the only difference is I don't think the Red Sox are ahead of the Yankees in the standings like the Giants are ahead of the Dodgers at this point. But it's still kind of a similar feeling where one team is kind of, I won't even say reeling from injuries because I can't claim that Max Muncy has the same importance to the Dodgers as Aaron Judge does to the Yankees. That's not even close. Um, But 
Look, both teams dealing with that kind of a thing. Uh, Rotational injuries, for sure, are definitely haunting the Dodgers and the Yankees simultaneously. But the Red Sox and the Giants deserve credit for just outplaying uh, their rivals this weekend. Um, And then you have the Brewers who swept the Pirates. Honestly, both of these teams had not been playing well heading into the series, so this was really just a toss-up. But the fact of the matter is, it was a battle for the the leader of the NL Central by the end of the weekend, uh, most likely. And although they almost got passed by another team, but I'll talk about that in a second. But because of that, I just decided, you know what? I believe more in the Pirates. I liked Mitch Keller being on the mound for one of those games. Thought that was going to be a win for the Pirates. But instead, they lost all three. They've now lost six in a row. We'll talk more about that later. And then the Rangers took two of three from the Blue Jays. That was my only win of the week. That was a very, very entertaining series. And I thought I might have lost all of my weekend predictions when the Blue Jays pulled out a 2-1 win over the Rangers on Friday. But I wasn't too worried because I had the Rangers losing that start because it was Gosman's start for the Blue Jays anyway. Um, Definitely the anchor of that rotation, uh, whereas their next two pitchers, not not as good. And the Rangers were able to put up more runs. Only got four on Saturday, but they got 11 on Sunday to seal that series away and get the victory there. And then in the College World Series, uh, unfortunately, I ended up picking all chalk. The one game I would have switched, funny enough, is that I would have picked Oral Roberts over TCU and, well... Oral Roberts beat TCU 6-5 in the first game uh, of the College World Series this year. Um, I, as I said, probably would have changed that pick if I were going to change any of them, but just didn't end up doing that. It was a close call, and the game itself was close. Oral Roberts hitting a three-run home run in the top of the ninth to take the lead and eventually win the game off of that anyway. So it was definitely a very close game. TCU suffering their first loss of the entire NCAA tournament, which is crazy. Uh, But Oral Roberts had a crazy winning streak going into the tournament and just a lot of crazy streaks going on with that team. Um, So, you know, they were hot too. Then you had number two, Florida, who beat number seven, Virginia, six to five. Virginia's been a pretty popular dark horse pick, I guess you could say, just because, you know, they're not a dark horse. They are a national seeded team. They are a a super regional host at that. Um, But the fact of the matter is we still do have the number one overall seed, the number two overall seed, and the number five seed who was number one multiple times throughout the season uh, with the top two picks in the draft on their team, that being LSU. So the, it does make sense that you could still call the number seven team in the nation a dark horse because of the fact that those other three teams are present um, and they had a tough road having to play Florida first and Florida was able to come out with the victory. That was what I picked. Then you have number one Wake Forest to beat number eight Stanford three to two. This game had a rain delay in the middle of it. Um, I don't think Stanford's coach will ever have a hot dog with, I believe, I think they said it was just ranch was the only thing they had available to put on the hot dog in terms of uh, timing for condiments because they were in a rain delay, but he had to get back out there quickly. So he came out and got a hot dog and then had to go back to coaching, but then they lost the game after that. So that was kind of unfortunate um, for Stanford there. But Wake Forest came back and got the two runs after the rain delay. So that's... Some bad luck there. He might not eat a hot dog with ranch again. But then you have number five LSU who beat Tennessee 6-3. Classic matchup of SEC teams. Paul Skeens was as good as expected. And pretty much everybody on LSU just kind of lived up to the billing of how much talent is on that roster. Okay, well, Patrick's predictions for next weekend will be posted, as always, on our website, 4thand24.com on Thursday. Let's now move to our very brief review of the NBA Finals. Uh, Patrick, why don't you just say everything that happened in the last week in the NBA? Well, it was pretty quick. The Nuggets beat the Heat in five games, and, well, we were at Game 5 in both series, in both the NBA and the NHL, and if you know anything about either of the sports, well, 
both of those games immediately ended those series. Um, this game, though, it was an intriguing one. It was a deserving finale uh, to the series. I-, I would argue that this is probably how the series should have ended. It was a close game, but not a close series, and I think that's pretty accurate. Uh, there were individual points in this game where, you know, it was really the, a familiar story for Miami where just it felt like they had to capitalize on what they had more. Um, Denver, I think, I'm trying to find the exact stretch, but I don't think Denver scored their first point until three minutes into the game. Yeah, they scored their first point two minutes into the game. Uh, And Miami only had five points at that time, despite the fact that the first possession of the game was a Jamal Murray turnover. The second possession of the game was a Michael Porter Jr. turnover. The third possession of the game was an Aaron Gordon missed layup. Um, then the Heat got an offensive rebound and scored, and then Jokic turned the ball over. So the fact of the matter is, them not scoring in that whole stretch to make it more than five to nothing was a pretty bad sign. And by the way, even after they had gotten some points, uh, Denver scored their first points with ten minutes left. They scored their second points, or I guess their third and fourth points, eight minutes with eight minutes left, and that was a, a KCP push shot. Um, after they had already missed two more threes and turned the ball over one more time. So you look at how that game started. I felt like the Heat should have been up more. Uh, They weren't. Both teams just could not shoot at all. Uh, Denver eventually pulled away, started off the game, uh, eventually got out to a 12-5 lead. But then Miami came back. They stormed back and were able to push their lead to 24-22 by the end of the first quarter. And then they actually led at the half. Uh, they were able to carry a 51-44 lead into the second half, but uh, Denver just had too much offensively by the end of the game. Uh, the Heat just didn't have enough shooting, uh, weren't able to get it going really offensively, while Denver was able to get it going, especially Nikola Jokic. He had some foul trouble in the first half that really plagued him, but after that was over, 28.16 rebounds, 4 assists on 12 of 16 shooting. So Jokic just kind of did his thing. Jamal Murray had 14-8-8, not a crazy game from him, but a good game on 6-15 of shooting. Uh, KCP had 11 points on 4-10, of had those first four points for them that were really important, though. Uh, Bruce Brown had 10 points and 6 rebounds, had a pretty important offensive rebound and putback in the fourth quarter that really helped them out there. Uh, But only 4-14 for him. Christian Brown had 7 points on 2-4. of Michael Porter Jr. had 16 points on 7-17 of shooting. He also had a few pretty important offensive rebounds, had 13 rebounds overall. Could not get his shot going, but was able to impact the game in other ways. But the fact of the matter is, it's the same story again for the Heat that it was throughout the series. 18% from three for Denver. They still won. I mean, that was just kind of what happened throughout the series. Denver couldn't shoot poorly enough to take themselves out of a game. I mean, the Heat definitely had their opportunities in the series, just not able to capitalize. Um, And really, if you're looking at it, Jimmy Butler is kind of the key to this. Um, I think... He, he made five field goals in the fir- in the whole game, uh, 21 points total, but I, I feel like at least three of them were in a two-minute stretch in the fourth quarter, and it ended with him missing two shots at the end of the game as well and turning the ball over. So yeah, I, I, you can't put the game on Jimmy Butler, honestly, for, for what happened, but he did have the final turnover. I would say KCP had, had an underrated impact on this game, scoring the first four points, for Denver to start them off, and then also getting the game-sealing turnover, and then actually making the free throws at the end, which is something that role players often, they might miss those free throws at that important point of a game, but they were able to make both. Uh, The Heat were down by one 
with 24 seconds left still, so they still had a chance after uh, a big comeback by Denver. They were actually leading with a minute and a half left, but uh, Jimmy, but actually Max Struess, I should say, missed a three. That was their play. Both teams kind of fumbled the ball around for a little bit, and then Jimmy Butler's bad pass with 24 with 27 seconds left, given to KCP. He hits both free throws to push it to three. The Heat go for a three, which was kind of also a misstep with 14 seconds left in the game that they took that one. Um, and it was a really ugly three that Jimmy Butler tried to bank in, I guess, if he even tried. I hope he tried to bank it in because if he wasn't trying to bank it in, it was a really bad shot. Um, but he tried to shoot a three over two guys. We all know Jimmy Butler is not supposed to be a three-point shooter anyway. They tried to draw up a play for Duncan Robinson. They couldn't get him the ball. Jimmy Butler threw up that three. It missed. And then Bruce Brown knocked down both free throws, and the Heat missed a three, and that was the end of the game as KCP dribbled the ball out after getting the rebound. So, look, Denver, in that game, did just enough to win. They played just enough, just well enough in clutch time. They absolutely, start to finish, were the best team in the NBA, I believe. I think that that has been proven, and I think that maybe, yeah, there were points in the season where a bunch of teams were hotter than them. Sure, the Lakers had their stretch, the Warriors had their stretch, the Celtics definitely did. Uh, the Bucks had the Bucks and the Celtics really both had stretches where it looked like they were just going to dominate everybody. And then there was, I think, a point where the Bucks I don't remember who it was, but one of the Bucks or the Celtics beat the other by like 50 when it was those two who had won like a combined 17 in a row. And it was like, OK, well, they won the title. Um, but, you know, the Bucks lost in the first round to the Heat and the Heat ended up beating the Celtics as well. So they took down the two other kind of big teams out there in front of the Nuggets and all the teams in the West just kind of fell apart for different reasons. And Denver really was just able to dismantle all of them. Um, only what four losses or five losses throughout the entire thing. And the Phoenix Suns taking them to six games was the closest series they ended up having. So definitely deserve to win this title. Um, it, there aren't many teams that don't deserve to win a title when they get there. It's always a grind to get through the postseason. but if there were ever a team that was balanced, doesn't feel like it was built like a super team and, just played well throughout the regular season and the postseason, it would definitely be Denver. Yeah, Denver, class of the NBA in the playoffs, in the regular season too. Um, they just deserved it. And good for them, good for the city. Never won a championship before in basketball, that is. Um, and just, I think, you know, unfortunately for the fans, the playoffs ended pretty quickly. Um, but... Denver really, truly did deserve it. I know you got some parting thoughts. Yeah, I was just going to say, in terms of the deserving thing, I will also say that if you look at these teams, Denver's conference record was 34-18. and 18. That's the same as Philly, Cleveland, Boston, and one game back of Milwaukee for the best conference record in the league. And when you look at the leagues, the West was so much deeper than the East. I mean, to the point where, let's, let, let's, I mean, let's talk about this. Brooklyn didn't even have to go through the play-in bracket. And their best player by the end of the year was Mikael Bridges, who was the Suns' fourth best player throughout most of the year. So, and and the Suns obviously were the four seed and got eliminated because and got eliminated in the second round by Denver with relative ease. I mean, you had the Lakers in the play-in bracket. You had Minnesota, who pretty much played Denver as tough as Miami did. You had a team with Kyrie Irving and Luka Doncic miss the playoffs in this conference. Like the West was so much better than the East by the end of the year in terms of the depth. You look at teams like Toronto and Chicago and Miami, and honestly, Miami was a dumpster fire for most of the season as well. And then Atlanta also. Just those teams at the bottom don't quite match up with the West, so it's really not surprising that Denver didn't get the best overall record. 
but I really do feel like they were the best overall team kind of looking back on it in terms of just overall consistency staying steady throughout the season. I feel like maybe more people could have seen this coming than the amount who did. All right. Well, that's it for our talk about the NBA this week. It's also it for our talk about NBA this season. We will uh, pick it up in the fall on one of our podcasts, but uh, let's do another wrap-up session with another major sport that also had its postseason come to an end with our final look at the NHL Stanley Cup playoffs. Well, Vegas won Game 5 9-3. to three. This one's going to be a lot quicker because we didn't talk, obviously, as much about the overall uh, regular season as much. So, A, we don't have as much knowledge, and B, uh, not armed with that interesting of a game either because um, this game wasn't close. It started off with... Two goals in the first period for Vegas. Uh, Florida responded to make it 2-1 to one in the second period. But Vegas responded with four goals in a row after that. And then Barbashev opened up the third period with a goal to make it 7-1. to one. And it really felt like, you know, with the game at 7-1 to one in the third period, it was already over. Um, Florida got two more goals. They made it closer. But then Vegas also got an empty net goal and then one final goal um, at the end of the game. So... Vegas steamrolled Game 5. Um, this team, it feels like, I, I don't know what it is, but I guess if I were to craft the overall narrative for their season to kind of counteract the Denver narrative of them being the best, deserving it, all that stuff, Vegas feels like the least, I, I don't know how to describe it, but if you were to make expansion team into an adjective, they feel like the least expansion team expansion team of all time. I, I just don't... There's nothing about this team that really feels like it's been an expansion team, and it's probably just the run of dominance that they've had, and the fact that they've been good basically since, not even basically, they have been good since their inception as a team, um, because they came into the league and the very first season they had, they were able to make it all the way um, to the Stanley Cup Finals, and just overall... They have not finished worse than fourth in their division at all. So it's just, you know, there's just not really... It, you just really can't say that this team is like a typical struggling expansion team. They missed the playoffs once in their franchise's history. I mean, that is hard to do no matter how long your team has existed. But, you know, first, round, first year, loss in the Stanley Cup Finals. Uh, two years later, they're in the Conference Finals again. Then they're in the semifinals uh, in the COVID year where it wasn't actually done by conference, I don't think. And then this year, won the Stanley Cup. So definitely not the history of um, a of an expansion team, really. I mean, yeah, it just they, doesn't they, look they, like they, that they, at they, all. They did change the, the rules, the expansion rules, in terms of making a uh, more deep player pool available to them as the teams couldn't protect as many people. So that helped, but you're right, still. No run of success like and, this. And, and that's the thing. I mean, it, it is how you want to set it. I, I honestly think that this is, you know, I don't necessarily know if there is kind of a middle ground, but um, the Kraken were terrible in their first season. They did turn it around and make the playoffs this year, but they were awful. Uh, only had 60 points, had a 40-point swing from their first season to this season. That feels like it's natural. I mean, they felt like... And then they lost in the second round in a close series, barely won their first round series where they were an underdog. It feels like it was natural. They played the one seed in the West, the Avalanche, and were able to take them down, which, by the way, that actually had pretty big impact on Vegas being able to advance because it took out one of the better teams. Uh, but, I mean, it, it just feels a lot more natural with how the Kraken have progressed. But I think, you know, it also brings up the question of how this is going to work if the NBA decides to turn to that. It would be very interesting to see what happens... Um, with NBA rules with that. But I think that 
the one thing is that hockey requires so many players um, up and down the roster that I really do think that it, it was a new, unique opportunity. And, you know, the concept of role players versus stars and everything kind of blends a little more in hockey because it's more just a second line player just having to move up to the first line, which would happen anytime anybody gets injured, you know, just kind of regularly. But I, I don't know where I'm going with this, but I guess I would say, you know, when he retired today, so I'll invoke his name, but I don't think a team of five Lou Williams level players and a few top overall picks would make the playoffs in their second year like the Kraken were able to, which is basically what they're built on. Like if the if you made the Vegas whatevers in the NBA, that team is not making the playoffs. It, it doesn't matter how many six man of the years even you could put on that team. And I bet that if the NBA were to do an expansion draft, they would probably protect seven players would be my guess, at least seven, maybe eight. And if you look at the championship players on a, the players on a championship roster, if you looked at this year, you're probably the best option you'd have available. I'd assume you're getting Duncan Robinson and Contavious Caldwell-Pope as your anchors of your team in the NBA. So yeah, basketball, you're not getting rotation, guys. Hockey, you are. Right. Hockey, and, and the fact of the matter is hockey, you do get, there is such a bigger rotation that no matter how many players you can protect, there are still players that if you scout right, you can probably put together a decent team of like, I, I won't say bench players, but second line players. I just don't think that the NBA will have that. And I think that'll be an interesting thing if the NBA does do expansion because it might take a while and that team's, uh, that team's location might be a little frustrated, especially if it's Seattle and they get what the Kraken did in their second year and then their other team is, I don't know, tanking for the next Victor Wembanyama in eight or nine years anyway. So that it'll be an interesting thing if that ever happens. But I guess just going back to the point, Vegas did have a great season. Um, they were definitely one of the best teams. It doesn't feel exactly like Denver's does. It feels like they were definitely a little bit lower on the totem pole in terms of the, the NHL kind of standings and the rankings and everything. Uh, but at the same time, it doesn't really feel like the championship came out of nowhere. But if you, you want to give credit to anybody, it's got to be to Florida. I mean, that was a crazy run that they made through the playoffs. Um, really, both South Florida teams, Miami and the Florida Panthers, both making amazing runs considering that they both, frankly, I mean, Florida needed some crazy stuff to make the playoffs. And the Heat needed to win a play-in game that they were down by 10 in to make the playoffs. So both teams barely made the playoffs. Uh, fans were probably pretty mad throughout the season, and then all of a sudden, both of them end up in the finals. So, I mean, overall, they both should be happy, but maybe not satisfied without winning a championship. Yeah, great, great run for uh, Southern Florida teams in the NBA and NHL, and and Vegas definitely more of a Cinderella story. But another city getting its uh, get a pro sports championship. Obviously, it's Vegas's first ever because they've barely had professional sports. Well, they're about to go from zero titles and zero teams in six years to like 12 titles and 12 titles across four teams in a few years. I mean, by the time that the, if the NBA gets there, you if they get to carry the A's titles as theirs and the Raiders titles. Oh, I was like, who's titled? They're not going to win them in that city. They get, they get Vegas' the titles. Yeah. They get the Raiders. They get the A's. Okay. There, there's a lot yeah. of history in those yeah, franchises. I meant one while they were in the city. But, oh, okay. Yes. But, uh, all right, well, we'll see what the future holds for Vegas. I don't think the Oakland A's... Um, are going to be bringing them any new championships anytime soon. Um, but we'll talk about the Oakland A's maybe as we transition from our uh, look at the NHL to our look at Major League Baseball, where we will not start in the American League West because we start, as always, in the American League East. Yeah, well, the A's would be the first topic of discussion. It's actually interesting. There have been two teams bookending the American League the entire season. The National League has not been like this, but since the beginning of the season— the Rays have been the first team we talk about. The A's have been the last team we talk the about. Rays the A's. That's what we call um, And once again, 
Even after the A's winning streak, they are still going to be last, not only in the AOS, but also overall. But let's go to the A East really quick. Uh, the Tampa Bay Rays, they did the impossible. They dropped a series. Not only did they drop a series, they dropped a series to the Padres, which is interesting. Um, but the Rays, 51-24, and 24, still chugging along, doing pretty well. Uh, the Rangers have not had the greatest two weeks, and they also lost the series to the Rays. So the Rays are really comfortable, honestly, with their overall record or their lead for the overall best record. And actually, it has shifted now for the first time in what feels like maybe since the Dodgers were first to 30 wins um, or second to 30 wins behind the Rays. Um, there's a team in the National League who actually is threatening for best record, and it's the Braves who actually have the second best overall record right now. Uh, but second best record in the AL belongs to two teams. It belongs to Baltimore first and then also Texas. But Baltimore at 44 and 27, excuse me, is five games back in this division um, the one thing you can say about any team in this division is that the the road record is a little bit concerning for any of them. Um, only only the Yankees, the Orioles, and the Rays are above 500, and the Rays are only three games above 500 on the road. So that'll be interesting. I mean, I guess the one thing you can say is that in the playoffs they won't be playing on the road if they're able to keep this up. Um, and we're almost halfway through the season anyway, so which is also crazy to think about. Uh, but the fact of the matter is. The Rays are doing fine. They're still 5-5 five and five in their last 10, and it's the Orioles who are surging the most uh, in this division at 7-3 and three in their last 10, starting to kind of put some separation between them and not only the rest of the AL, if you exclude kind of the Rangers who are off in their own category as well with the Orioles, um, but also from the rest of this division, they're now five and a half games ahead of the Yankees who are in third place. Speaking of the Yankees, as I said, they're in third place. They have lost four in a row, three and seven in their last 10. This team struggles without Aaron Judge. Um, the longer he's out, the lesser their playoff chances get, the lower they get, the lower their chances are at really being a competitive team, the lower their chances are of winning a World Series. The fact of the matter is, they could really do exactly what the Phillies did by the end of next year, or by the end of this season, I should say, and by the end of the postseason, where, you know, they get their star player back, he jolts all the momentum into the team, and all of a sudden they have enough talent to carry a roster all the way to the World Series. I don't think this roster will be World Series quality regardless, but if the Yankees can get healthy enough and can find a third starter or trade for one, Cole Rodon, if he's healthy by the end of the season, which he's already rehabbing, so he is getting back soon, Cole Rodon and then a third starter name who it is, whether it's someone, whether it's Severino or Herman, someone from the team, someone not from the team, uh, it could be Mitch Keller from the Pirates if they continue to fall off the fall off the table in the standings. Once you get down to Aaron Judge playing like Aaron Judge, he could carry that team just like the Phillies were carried. I don't think they're going to do that, but I am saying that it is definitely a possibility. And at this point, it's looking like their sets their their sights are set on the wild card. I don't think there's any way they're going to win this division at all. There's just no chance. Uh but the the Blue Jays then, they are 11 games back, 39 and 34. Uh, four and six in their last ten. They were hot for a little bit, but now not so much. Uh, I, I will say I'm not really disappointed with this team. I'm not really impressed by this team. I'm just kind of some. I'm just very lukewarm on this team. They still feel like a good team, but I wouldn't be surprised if they missed the playoffs. And I think it would still be considered a failure if they did miss the playoffs. But at the same time, you look at the AL and you look at the teams that have kind of jumped up above them. Most of them don't have more talent than them, but at the same time. That'll happen every year. There are always a few teams that don't have as much talent, arguably, on paper as the other teams, but it just doesn't work out for those other teams. And then you have Boston at the bottom of the division, uh, still a very strong seller team, as once again, these divisions fall directly into order as the Red Sox uh, at two games above 500 
would be leading the Twins by two games, uh, <laughs> despite the fact that they have uh, sitting been sitting in last for, what, maybe two, three months at this point? I don't think they've made their way out of last at all, but above 500, they've won five of six against the Yankees uh, in the last week, so that's a pretty good sign for them. Six and four in their last ten. They've won four in a row. The only concern is can they beat a non can they beat a team that isn't Aaron Judge list Yankees because that team, as I've said, has not been very good all season either. Okay, let's move on to the American League Central. Well, as I said, not much to talk about in terms of playoff contenders in this division. Every team is a better playoff contender in this division than any team or sorry, every team in the AL East is a better contender than any team in the AL Central. The Twins are thirty six and thirty six on the season. That's the best in this division. Uh, the Guardians are two and a half games back at 33 and 38. They were able to take a game from the Diamondbacks this weekend, which that's good for them. That's a hard thing to do. Not many teams have been able to do that. So I will give them some credit for that. And they were playing the Padres as well. So a tough trip out West for them. Uh, but they did, they did lose both series, but they did take uh, two of three from the Astros before that. So not too bad overall. And they took the series from the Red Sox before that. So they haven't been playing too poorly. They're 5-5 five and five in their last 10. I'm actually starting to not be as worried about this team long-term. They got Tristan McKenzie back. It seems like their starting rotation is supposed to be, uh, or not supposed to be, but it is improved. Aaron Savali also came back. So they're getting healthier, um, and I really feel like if their lineup can hit a better stride soon, they'll be able to probably turn this division lead around pretty quickly. They have a stretch coming up against the A's and then the Brewers and then the Royals. So nine, six of nine games against the two worst teams in the league should give them a pretty good opportunity to make up some games on the Twins, although I'm not quite sure who the Twins are playing, uh, but I will go ahead and check. But it doesn't really matter for the Twins because they just dropped a series to the Tigers, so I don't really care who you're playing at that point. You're probably going to lose some games if you're already losing to the Tigers, and, well, they play the Red Sox for four, and then they play the Tigers again, and then they play the Braves and the Orioles. So the Guardians definitely have an opportunity uh, to make up some games here. If they're ever going to take the division back, at the middle, at some point in the middle of the season, it would be now. Uh, but then, speaking of those Tigers, they're 30 and 40. They're 4 and 6 in their last 10. Four, 30 and 40 doesn't sound too bad when you're saying it in the context of the AL Central because they are in third place. But I would like to say that other than the A's division and the Royals division, the Central and the West, they would be last in every division, or they would be fourth in every division in baseball. Um, and just would be only ahead of the Nationals, the Cardinals, and the Rockies, who are the worst three teams in the National League. So, again, this division is not too great. Then you have the White Sox. They're 31-42. and 42. Talked about their series failure against the Dodgers, where they choked a few games. Um, but also this weekend, had one of the rarest things you'll ever see. Lance Lynn had 16 strikeouts in their game on Sunday, and he lost the game uh, because they got one grand run of run support for him. Uh, he also still gave up three, which is hard to do when you strike out 16, but pretty average Mariners game, if you ask me. You know, a lot of strikeouts, but still some runs on the board. The Mariners really need to figure out how to stop striking out, but that's a different discussion. <laughs> um, and then you have the Royals at the bottom of this division. 19-52. and 52. They have lost their last one, so they did break up a losing streak with a big comeback against the Angels, actually, but they are still only better than the A's on the season. 1-9 and nine in their last 10 and they lost Vinny Pasquantino, one of their better hitters, uh, for the season. So they are in a very bad spiral right now. Okay, well, let's move over to the American League West. Well, the Texas Rangers might be one of the teams that are looking at the Royals roster by the end of the year, trying to find some improvements because 
to be honest with you, none of these teams, especially because both in, in both leagues, the central divisions are so bad that really if you're at or near 500, you're not a seller at that point because these teams are all bad. Um, but the Royals might be the one true seller that actually has some talent. The A's don't have any talent to sell, <laughs> to be quite honest. It's hard to do that, but it is true. I don't think... I can't think of a single player on that roster who other teams would want because they don't have guys like Aroldis Chapman or Scott Barlow's hanging out in their bullpen on a bad team. The A's just have a bad pitching staff and a bad bullpen. So I don't really know how anybody's going to get anything out of the A's. I'm sure they'll give away somebody. But uh, the Rangers, they'll be looking at those types of teams. Uh, Right now, it looks like the Royals are the only true sellers, but Rangers definitely not going to be sellers. They might have been in past seasons at the deadline. Last year, I would say they were remarkably, um, I won't say stubborn, but maybe nonchalant about the deadline in terms of just not really ready to trade guys away because of the fact that they had Seager and Simeon signed for so long and because they knew that if they were going to make a splash, they were going to make some splashes this offseason in free agency, bring some of their prospects up. Josh Young is contending for AL Rookie of the Year as a result, um, probably the leader at this point in in those power rankings if you were to make them, uh, but Just overall, they had the perfect storm brewing, and they made sure that they were going to sit tight on all those pieces while they could, and it has worked out so far. And speaking of perfect storm, Mike Trout has been struggling for all season, honestly, but the Angels have made their way back in this divisional race. I don't think I've seen the Angels above the Astros in the standings in at least two years. I don't know if if I'm making that up, but I really do not remember a point where the Astros were below the Angels unless it was super, super early in the season— but here we are. The Angels are 41-33. and 33. They have climbed above the Astros, four and a half games back of the Rangers. They are currently in position to be in a wild card spot for the first time in what feels like a very long time. Seven and three in their last ten, while their Astros uh, counterparts are three and seven in their last ten, have lost four in a row. Just really surprising. I, I mean, I feel like I've said all season that we're just kind of waiting for the Astros to make their run. I don't know if they have one in them at this point, because overall, they just don't I mean, I, I do think they they have made some runs. They've had seven or eight game winning streaks here and there, but they followed them up with some really bad series. And when you look at the competition they've had, they did take two of three from the Nationals, but they got swept by, they they sorry, the Blue Jays took three of four, including the last three of a series against them. Then the Guardians took two of three from them. Then, yeah, they beat the Nationals twice, but it's the Nationals. They are the worst team in the National League. And then the Nationals did win the finale of the series, and then the Reds came into Houston and swept the Astros, something that I thought was completely impossible at the beginning of the season, although the Reds, they're now a pretty good team, actually, and we'll talk about that in a second. Uh, But just surprising from the Astros, they're playing the struggling Mets and then the struggling Dodgers and then the struggling Cardinals, though. So, you know, maybe three teams that were talked about before the season as World Series contenders that the Astros are running into are now... Probably the worst team, or the most underachieving team of the season in the Mets. Uh, the Dodgers, who are 4-8 and eight in their last 12 or something like that, 12-18 and 18 in the last 30 games. And then the Cardinals, who are the one of the worst teams in the Central, uh, which is the worst, or the worst team in the Central, which is the worst team, the worst division in baseball, um, the third worst team in the National League. So some opponents that you thought would be tough that are now easy. We'll see what the Astros do with that schedule. Uh, but in the rest of this division, you have the Mariners, who are just okay. I mean, they've kind of just been this way the whole season, 35 and 35. They need to stop striking out. I've said this on this podcast a few times, but I haven't said it that much overall. They really, 
need to figure that issue out. I mean, 16 strikeouts against Lance Lynn is horrible. He has not been a good strikeout pitcher this year. He's not been a good pitcher this year. He has an ERA near seven. And they were able to put up three runs on him. They got run support. They won the game five to one. But if they can't figure out how to get on base in the playoffs and at least just put the ball in play, they're not going anywhere because the teams who win the World Series, the teams who play well in the postseason, they might have a lot of power, but they're also sneaky in terms of being able to actually get on base and handle the ball well in situations where you just need to put the ball in play. That is not the Mariners. Uh, speaking of putting the ball in the play, that is something the A's don't do very much. That's why they're 19-55, and but their offense has not been the problem recently. It's been the pitching as always. Uh, but despite their little seven-game winning streak, that was fun while it lasted. They have now lost five in a row back to their normal ways. The A's being back to being the A's. All right, let's turn our attention to the National League and start in the Eastern Division. As I mentioned earlier, there is a new team contending for best overall record. It is the Atlanta Braves. They have won six in a row, eight and two in their last ten. Uh, a 639 winning percentage on the season, 46 and 26 overall, which means that they have the second best overall record in baseball, the best in the National League. Um, something very interesting is going on in this division where none of these, t- I think combined, um, the range, sorry, the Braves, the Phillies, and the Marlins have lost, I think, seven games in all of their last 15 combined. Yeah, the Braves have won 13 of 15. The Phillies have won 13 of 15. And the Marlins have won 12 of 15. So every team in this division right now that is not named the New York Mets is on fire uh, if they have any talent. The Nationals just aren't very good. But look, this division is kind of crazy. The Braves honestly wouldn't be leading this division if, or sorry, the Marlins could be leading this division if the Braves weren't as good as they have been. Uh, The Marlins are better than every team in the Central. They're better than the Phillies. They're better than the Mets. They have a better record than the Dodgers by two games now. They would be second if they were in the NL West, only behind Arizona. So they have been pretty good. Um, The Mets, on the other hand, they are 4-11 in their last 15, and so are the Nationals. So the bottom of this division has been horrible recently. The top of this division uh, has been amazing. And as a result, you still have a pretty stark contrast between the Braves, the Marlins, and the Phillies. Uh, The Braves sitting at five games ahead of the Marlins, who are three games ahead of the Phillies for second. But if you look at the wild card standings, the Marlins now have the top wild card standing in the National League, and the Phillies are just one game back of the Dodgers for that final wild card spot if the season were to end today. Phillies also 8-2 and two in their last 10. Uh, Marlins 7-3. and three. Combined, they've won 16 in a row, with the Braves and the Phillies both winning 6 in a row, and the Marlins winning 4 in a row, and then the bottom of the division, as I said, Four and eleven in their last fifteen each. Not very good from the Mets or from the Nationals. All right, let's move over to our look at the NL Central. Well, as I've said, the Central Division doesn't have much to talk about. The Brewers were able to complete the sweep over the weekend uh, to take the division lead from the Pirates, as I mentioned. Um, and I talked about those implications. The Pirates now two and a half games back at thirty-four and thirty-six. The Brewers now thirty-seven and thirty-four at the top of the division. But then you have the Reds, who have won eight games in a row. Uh, Ellie De La Cruz definitely contributes to winning baseball. I think we have decided that. And I also think that we have seen now that if you bring up a lot of top prospects all at the same time from a pretty stacked farm system, it tends to bring some pretty good results. Spencer Steer, uh, Ellie De La Cruz, even Jonathan India, who's obviously not a prospect anymore, but he's been there for um, a good amount and had a good season. And Matt McClain as well. Just a lot of prospects that this team has that have played really well. 
And as a result, you're seeing the team get an upgrade, get a boost. Uh, Ellie De La Cruz, you know, he only has a 792 OPS, but that's pretty good for a rookie um, who's been in the league for 44 at-bats. He's also only been in 11 games and already has six stolen bases, which is crazy. He does strike out a lot, but six stolen bases and five, uh, sorry, six stolen bases and four extra base hits in 10 games is pretty good production from a rookie. Um, and then Spencer Steer is probably in the rookie of the year conversation. He, I don't think he can get above Corbin Carroll with the season he is having, but he's probably second or third in that race in the National League right now. And he's just having a great season. And as a result, the Reds have been able to kind of climb out of nowhere in this division all the way to the top, pretty much just a half game back of Milwaukee entering the week. Uh, although they do play the Rockies, so that's that's a pretty good result for them. Uh, but then they play the Braves and the Orioles and the Padres. So we'll see what happens when they run into some really, really tight competition. But those are going to be for some fun series between those two teams. And then in fourth... You have the only team with a positive run differential in this entire division. It's the Chicago Cubs. They're plus nine on the year, seven and three in their last 10. Just four games back of this division, despite all the struggles they've had. I really think that they can turn it around and have a good chance to lead or even win this division at some point. But it'll just be a matter of how much does this team try to compete, considering that they might be under 500, but only a few games back in the division. But at the same time, not really in a championship window and having a lot of good prospects that they could keep and, you know, secure a better future rather than going after a one season division title run when they think they might have many to come in the future. It'll be an interesting thing to watch. They might even wait to see what Cincinnati does at the deadline and kind of mirror them and see what they do. Because if Cincinnati's going to go for it all this season, the Cubs definitely should take a step back um, because Cincinnati has brought up the prospect capital already. And if they're going to use even more of it, to get better players for the now, it's going to be really hard to be better than them. Uh, and then you have the Cardinals, who are kind of, funny enough, the only team that's really in win-now mode in this division, yet they're the only team that, well, is in last. Um, they are 4-6 and six in their last 10. Run production still has not been an issue, but their pitching continues to be the thing that causes them to struggle. The third worst overall record in the National League. And finally, let's move over to the National League West. The Diamondbacks are in first place at 43-29, and 29, a familiar sight this year. I think the Dodgers and Diamondbacks have probably been in first for relatively similar amount of days. But then it's a new team in second place, fresh off the heels of a seven-game winning streak. You have the San Francisco Giants, who are 8-2 and two in their last 10. Uh, in that same stretch, the Dodgers are 4-6. and six. They've lost three in a row, all to the Giants. So overall, just, you know, uh, really just a, a sudden turn. Uh, but at the same time, not really a surprising one when you look at how these two teams have been playing recently. Uh, and as a result, you have the Giants who lead the Dodgers for second place in this division. L.A. with still a three-and-a-half uh, game advantage over the Padres, who are 35-36. and 36. They, on the other hand, though, are 7-3 and three in their last 10. They've won two in a row, and they won that series over the Guardians uh, over the weekend. But look, you really look at it overall— in the last 29 games that every team in MLB has played, the number one team in the league are the San Francisco Giants. They are 20-9 and nine in their last 29. Nobody is better. Uh, there are a bunch of 19-10 and 10 teams, Atlanta, Miami, Arizona. Uh, there's a reason why they're not catching up on Arizona. There's Philly, there's the Angels, uh, there's the Rays, there's also Cincinnati, and also Texas, who are all 18-11. So clearly, there are some teams that are playing really well as well that have been good all season long, and Baltimore is also 17-12. and 12. But... In that stretch, that same stretch, the Dodgers are 12-17, and 17, so they have kind of 
started to work themselves out of the race, honestly, moving down in that division. And the Padres are even above 500, playing 15 and 14 ball in their last 29 games, which is about on their season uh, average. So it's interesting to see what's going on in this division. I still think LA has the best chance to win it, but it's really starting to feel like the Diamondbacks are kind of putting their foothold in this division and maybe might be able to actually beat the Dodgers and maybe arrive a year or two early to their championship window uh, than what people expected. And then you have the Rockies at the bottom of this division who might never have a championship window at this point. Okay, well, that wraps up our look at Major League Baseball for the week. It also wraps this edition of the 4th and 24 podcast. Please be sure to check out our next podcast, which will be on Monday, June 26th, where we will recap Patrick's weekend predictions and have our weekly look at Major League Baseball, maybe a little bit of a look uh, more in-depth at the College World Series. In the meantime, please be sure to check out Patrick's additional content, including his picks for next weekend's games that will be posted, as always, on Thursday, and his Major League Baseball power rankings that are updated every Wednesday. All that content on our website, 4thand24.com. That's the number 4, T-H-A-N-D, the number 24.com. Thank you for listening.